Hi, I'm Maya Garant. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. And today we're going to ruin the World Cup. We're going to ruin something that we love, which is <laughs> <laughs> true. Today we're going to be talking about the World Cup and its many problems, and we are so graced with the presence of Ken Bensinger, who's a journalist and a friend who just came out with an amazing book about corruption in the world of soccer and the investigation that has seemed to threaten to take down world soccer. Well, we'll see if it does. Okay, before we get into the World Cup and our interview with Ken, Maya, how are you doing and what are you drinking? I am doing well. I'm uh, working on a piece of writing that I'm really excited to share with you guys and maybe even to like have an episode about in a few weeks. It's about crazy right-wing social imaginary Z movies, and I'm really excited to share it with you guys. (laughs) That's in a few weeks. Excellent. Um, And I am drinking some Boone Amber Ale because it is the summertime. I um, am drinking decaf coffee with Frangelico because it's the middle of the day. Usually we're recording in the evening so we can drink up, but it is the middle of the day and I still have to work. So I figured coffee with booze in it doesn't count. That doesn't really make you drunk, right? Well, I call it the poor man's speedball. <laughs> I always love yeah. some The uppers and the downers. And booze, the uppers and the downers at yeah. once. Yeah. Well, let's get to it. All right. Let's get to it. So I think first we need to start by talking about just how much we love the World Cup before we ruin it. Because I think the World Cup might actually be one of my favorite things that ever happens ever. Favorite thing ever. Yeah, it's it's kind of up there. I kind of live for it. And I particularly live for the first three weeks of the World Cup in which the eight groups have this round robin. Mm -hmm. So it's literally like an orgy of international soccer. It's like three to four games a day, Mm -hmm. every day for three straight weeks. I, I fucking live for it. It's one of my great favorite things ever. I also love the World Cup, but the reason that I love it is mostly because I'm a fan of the U.S. men's national team. So I should give the listeners some context because... Being a fan of the United States, particularly the men's national team, it's not like being a fan of most other sports where like uh, sometimes your team wins, sometimes they lose and, you know, you're happy and you're sad and there's always next season. Being a fan of U.S. men's soccer is like you're part of a movement to grow soccer in America. You're on this mission And you're part of the story of soccer becoming established as a legitimate major sport and the United States becoming real contenders in the world. So every World Cup is really fraught and weighted for U.S. men's (laughs) national team fans because it's a chance for us to show how far the sport has come in our nation. And it's a chance for the sport to grow more, to get more viewers, to have our stars be better known, and also for our players to get great experience playing against the best competition in the world. It's crucial to the growth of the sport. So I'm particularly pained that the United States didn't qualify for the World Cup this time. I mean, better soccer nations than we have failed to qualify and even failed to qualify this cycle. Oh, yeah. I mean, Italy and the Netherlands are not in the World Cup, exactly. which is crazy. And the thing is, I, I didn't realize how disappointed I would be because I hate Italy and I love to hate Italy. Hmm. And I don't think I realized how much my hatred of Italy is wrapped up in my love of hating them (laughs) until I saw that they didn't make it. And then they weren't there for you to hate. That's right. And you felt empty. I understand that. A little bit. (laughs) That makes perfect sense to me. But yeah, it's not just like, oh, we didn't make it. That's a bummer. It feels like this huge setback, this whole generation of players for whom this would have been their last World Cup before they're over the hill. Well, I think what's ironic about it is that 
the U.S. actually has some of the best players they've ever had right now. That is correct. Like that they have ever had. We have the best pool of players we have ever had. There is no question about that. And I'm coming at it uh, slightly differently. I love soccer because my dad is Israeli. He grew up playing soccer. He actually played soccer until he was 65. And that was the sport in our house. So I'm less bought into American soccer. Mm -hmm. To me, the fact that they didn't make it is more of like a mild annoyance. And when I watch them, I just have to be honest, like when I watch them, they have had in the past a limited passing game. (laughs) which I find very like important in terms of playing really the beautiful game. Mm -hmm. I often feel like they don't. So I root for them, but I also am not as invested in them because I definitely have the immigrant perspective, like whatever U.S., it's never going to be what these other nations are. They don't play the beautiful game. In soccer circles, we call that Euro snobbery. (laughs) You are a Euro snob. Absolutely. But I will say, I will say we've been gone to a few LAFC games and I've been tremendously heartened by how I feel like the game has improved, not only because they have a bunch of like foreign players, but because a lot of the American players are making those kind of like passes, shots, Mm -hmm. seeing the game like they're playing. I'm seeing increasingly the play of the beautiful game. And I don't think it's just Euro snobbery because it's also South American snobbery. We're talking about like footwork and like cleverness on the ball and those kind of like beautiful moves that you get excited about. Um, no, it's true. Um, the The United States men's team has been improving steadily. It's painful for all of us fans that, that we're missing out on this opportunity for our younger players to get experience on the world stage. Oh, yeah. It's just really awful. And it's made worse by a lot of other factors like that Mexico qualified and Mexico are our hated rivals. As the daughter of Israelis, I have to say watching Mexico beat Germany was a great thing because I love to hate (laughs) the Germans. I love to hate the Germans, although I had a very intense obsession with Bastian Schweinsteiger. He's now playing for the (laughs) Chicago Fire. He's like one of the greatest players of all time, even though he's completely a fucking Nazi. And like, what are you going to do? But I have this weird Woody Allen thing. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying I was obsessed (laughs) with Schweinsteiger. You were obsessed with his Aryan perfection. I was, Mm -hmm. but also with how he plays because my favorite players are always the playmakers. They're never like the strikers. They're the people who are like, in midfield, who see the whole field, yeah, who sort of create the field. You're Michael Bradley's. I get it. <laughs> you know what? I'm never going to say that Michael Bradley qualifies in that. You know what? We shouldn't talk about it. We should maybe agree to not talk about this. Our <laughs> listeners don't really want to hear us talk about actual all right, soccer. All right. All right. Okay. So let's, let's move on from this. So clearly we love the World Cup, but the problem is there are many, many things that should be interfering with our love of this sport. Indeed. I think the first and most obvious is that the organization that runs the World Cup, FIFA, you all know it from the video game title, (laughs) uh, is notoriously corrupt. Yes. It's well known and has been well known for decades that FIFA officials engage in bribery and corruption and the processes through which they make decisions about where World Cups will be held and even maybe possibly who's in which group during the group stage. Everyone kind of knows that none of that is on the level. Yes. And so right off the bat, to be a soccer fan, an international soccer fan, you kind of have to just sort of accept that everything comes with a question mark. Everything that happens has this question mark of like, is this real? Or is this just some backroom deal being played out on a pitch? But I also think sometimes, especially English fans, I feel like they really love to like blame the refs. Yeah. But they also love to hate their team. Because whenever (laughs) England sort of underperforms in their eyes, which I think is always because they feel like we founded the sport. They're always such whiny, sucky babies. But yeah, so we have intense international corruption. We also have in the States, weren't you telling me that like the person who ran USA soccer for a while was like a fucking right wing nut job? Not the person who ran USA soccer, 
But uh, one of the major owners in Major League Soccer, maybe that's what you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Phil Anschutz. Yeah. Phil Anschutz is this super rich dude who has been really instrumental in establishing the our domestic league, Major League Soccer. He owned a bunch of teams from the beginning, uh, now owns just the LA Galaxy. But honestly, without his investment and his sticking to an investment that was not a profitable investment for a good amount of time, without that, Major League Soccer might not exist. Um, it's also true that Phil Anschutz is a hardcore social conservative right wing anti gay marriage piece of shit. Just a piece of shit. Is that why there's been so much like at LAFC, there are pride flags everywhere. What's going on with that? Are teams not owned by him being like, no, fuck no. you, dude? It's, there's two things. One is that it's Pride Month. Um, and the other thing is that there's a campaign called, I think it's called Soccers for Everyone. Mm. The, the league actually it takes steps to try to promote inclusivity, which is lovely. I think the Pride flags are kind of a result of that. And also just that soccer fans generally in the U.S. tend to be more progressive politically. There's some kind of correlation there. So you'll tend to see more of those kind of spontaneous fan displays of support. Which is different from other places in the world. I think a great first book for a lot of you guys who might not know a lot about soccer is How Soccer Explains the World by Franklin Foer. It's a wonderful book that sort of talks about soccer's political associations and roots. And another reason why soccer can be kind of a disgusting sport is that it is not the case that other national teams are like super progressive. You'll have like the Spanish team going to play in the South Korea, Japan World Cup, taking pictures of themselves with their eyes like slanty eyes, like a oh, team yeah. picture where they do that. So there's two different things to address there. <laughs> one yeah. is one is that like in other countries, um, often your soccer team affiliation, not your national team affiliation, but your league team can be related to politics. Like in yeah. some uh, in some leagues, in some towns, there's like the fascist team. And there's like the yes. communist team. And yes. if you are rooting for certain teams in Europe, you're rooting for fascism. Like explicitly, not just like, oh, by association, because they used to be like that. No, 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 no. no. Or like, I actually like this team because I am a fascist. Yeah, exactly. So that that's definitely a thing. And then um, there's a lot of racism. A lot of racism. Separate from whether the team is explicitly fascist or not, you do see things like in Italy, fans throwing banana peels yep. at black players. Yeah. Yeah. All kind of stuff. And, and you can see how the international competition can lend itself to people, uh, you know, turning to the stereotypes and other yes. ways yes. to taunt their opponents that Which are, I actually thought... Something that was kind of amazing was <laughs> that South Korea just played Sweden and they changed all the players' numbers at the last minute because they had this thing where like Sweden's not going to be able to tell us apart anyway because they're a bunch of like anti-Asian racists. <laughs> and that was like a way that they were going to deal with it. So there's been all kinds of political stuff going on. But I think at the end of the day, the thing that gets in the way of the the beauty of the sport, the purity of the sport, the thing that's getting hard to deal with in terms of enjoying the World Cup or this World Cup is that in um, 2010, when they decided both to have the 2018 World Cup, this one in Russia, and then the 2022 Cup in Qatar, obviously these choices came as a result of blatant bribery and corruption. Right. And some of the corruption is so insane that it goes into match fixing. It goes into all of these things. So how can you enjoy a sport that is so sullied? To get into that, we're going to talk to journalist Ken Bensinger. He writes for BuzzFeed. He's an investigative journalist of some wonderful renown and repute. He's done such great work before this book, but he just came out with this book called Red Card. And it 
traces the United States investigation into FIFA corruption. Mm -hmm. The United States took an interest in it because Robert Mueller decided to take an interest in these cases that were investigations into cases that were complex criminal collaborations internationally. Right. And this is when he was head of the FBI. Under Obama. Under Obama. And so the FBI investigated FIFA and it led to a whole bunch of arrests and really the fall of a whole regime within FIFA. So we're going to talk to Ken. This book just came out last week, just in time for the World Cup. Um, We're so delighted that he took time out of his busy press schedule right now to talk to us. And uh, we'll see you on the other side of that interview. So we have a very special episode today. I wish I could have that capital V, capital S, capital E, uh, because we have Ken Bessinger here. He's a friend of mine, so it's not like a a straight-up situation where this is just pure journalism here. He's my buddy, and he just wrote an incredible book, Red Card, which follows the history of the investigation against FIFA and is this longer study of corruption in soccer. And it's fantastic. And he was kind enough to come and talk to us about it. And I'm really excited. But first of all, I loved the book. It's a great read. Thank you. My first question is probably how you chose this specific topic. Sure. Um, So I am a reporter. Uh, I've been a reporter for 20 years. And the last... I. About nine of those years, I've been an investigative reporter, not necessarily only about sports. I'm interested enough in sports that occasionally I'll write a sports story, but it isn't my main focus. And this story happened because I switched jobs. I was at the LA Times, went to BuzzFeed. um, And at this period in time in 2014, there was this great excitement and interest in the concept of long form journalism the idea that you could write stories that were longer than what newspapers would normally permit. So I was working at the LA Times where maybe the longest story I ever wrote was about 2,200 words um, and was suddenly given the chance to write at much greater length. And uh, towards the top of my story list when I took the job was a profile of a guy named Chuck Blazer. And Chuck Blazer was a guy who was immensely powerful and influential in world soccer, but kind of not particularly well-known anywhere, especially not in the U.S. where he was from. And a guy with that much power, he was, he was one of the 24 most powerful people in all world soccer. In any other country, he would be sort of a minor celebrity, if not a major celebrity, the kind of person who would really couldn't walk down the street without people flocking to him. Um, but this is a guy who uh, didn't have that problem, despite the fact that he was one of the most eye-catching uh, people you could ever imagine. I mean, this is a 450-pound man, um, who rode around in a mobility scooter with a parrot perched on his shoulder <laughs> and a big and a beard and a and a head of a mop of curls that looks like Santa Claus. So it's it's hard to imagine people didn't think about him, but they didn't. And so I thought, well, I want to write about this guy. And it turns out he was enormously corrupt. And I wrote an article about about him. It ran right before the last World Cup in Brazil in 2014. Soccer audiences were interested in it. A few the the sort of long form fanboy audiences liked it as well. But then I moved on. Uh, when, it, when it was done, I moved on to a, a, a couple of small articles and finally a series on um, immigrant work visas and had nothing to do with soccer or sports or anything. Um, and it wasn't until a year later in May, the end of May 2015, when these sensational arrests happened in Zurich, uh, that is the public coming out of this Department of Justice investigation that it becomes apparent that Blazer wasn't just corrupt, but he had, was in fact a secret cooperator. And I, through one of those strange um, twists of luck rather than ability or talent, suddenly became the worldwide expert on the guy who was at the center of this case. One of the things that jumps out to me about Blazer as a figure is his relationship to Donald Trump. Mm. It's hard when reading the book not to think about that because the focus is on the FBI investigation and there are a number of connections. And in a lot of ways, I think what was really exciting about Red Card, it brings us back, we did an episode a while back about procedural narratives and how the reason the Mueller investigation is so fascinating is because it taps into the same 
thing that makes people like watching Law and Order. And what I thought was really remarkable about Red Card was that it felt like a primer on FBI procedure. And so many of the things that you write about are things that we're hearing echoes of in the Mueller investigation, but you explain things in really granular detail. As you were writing, was that in your mind? Were you thinking about procedural dramas? And were you deliberately aiming to evoke that sort of effect? As I was writing it, the word procedural kept running through my head, and I couldn't figure out whether that was a good word or a bad word. Because I think certainly in the days of Dick Wolf, you know, law and order type stuff, some people love that stuff. I don't like that stuff very much because I think it's just does it's just a glazing of the surface and doesn't really tell right. the true story of how it works. But people people do seem to love that story, and so I wanted to. I think I wanted to find a way to be procedural without being schlock, and to actually figure it out. So I spent a lot of time talking to obviously people who knew about the case, but also talking to people who knew just how the criminal justice system works in, in the real world. I talked to. Mm numerous uh, former federal prosecutors or people who are defense attorneys on, on, on federal cases just to understand every little step. And that was it was important to me to, for that to be as uh, sort of real as possible. But mm-hmm. also it was, a, it was a little bit of a case of me just sort of following my own interests in terms of writing. But that's what I found fascinating. And I just, I thought like uh, telling people how this case was built was going to be important because uh, it's not a, there's not a reveal that FIFA was corrupt. That's not a surprise. It's not the twist in this story isn't, and then they discovered that this wonderful organization everyone loved turned out to be hiding a secret, right? <laughs> it wasn't that. So instead, to me, the reveal was how they did it. And that, that actually sprung from a conversation I had with a guy named Greg Dyke, who was the head of the English FA, um, which is the original soccer association in the whole world. But he was also the director of the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, if you ever Wikipedia him, he's got a very interesting thing. He took a fall for some interesting journalistic stuff having to do with some of the wonderful wars that uh, Britain and the U.S. are involved in. Um, but uh, I had a conversation with him and he said, um, well, you know, I, what's the cop story? Like, I don't care. Like, we all know Seth Blatter's a bum. What's the, who are the cops and robbers? Tell me how they did it. And I walked out of that meeting and I thought, yeah, it's, that's like the reveal. How do they do it? And how does it work? And how do these things come together? Now, at the time when I was thinking about it, this was before Trump had been elected. So I wasn't thinking of it as a Trump parallel. I mean, Mueller is, in fact, in the book, not a big character, but he appears in the book. And Mueller um, uh, was overseeing the FBI when this case began. And this case, it's very clear if his case never would have begun, if not for um, the judgment that Mueller had as FBI director, the kind of cases he was interested in, led the FBI agents um, in New York who opened this to look for this kind of case. They wouldn't have been looking otherwise. They would have been looking at Brooklyn Mafia. So Mueller made this happen in in an indirect way. And now Mueller, of course, is on the other end receiving the, the indirect benefit of it in certain ways. I think that it's true that the suspense of the investigation drives the book. And we all knew that FIFA was corrupt. But I think another big part of it is just how corrupt like how breathtaking the amounts of money are or how people would live. For me, like the description of FIFA's building. Right, right. Like it's sort of like underground chamber. And these characters who are absurd, it's, it's, I think, where the com- a lot of the comedy of it is. How did you sort of get to those details? Did you get to actually meet some of these crazy people and talk to them? Well, I had several sit-down interviews with Seth Blatter, who was the FIFA president. Oh. Um, he was certainly revelatory. I talked to a few of the defendants in the case on an off-the-record basis because they're not allowed to talk to journalists while they're under prosecution. And um, to this day, most of them really don't accept that there was anything bad going on. And if there were things bad going on, it was A, either normal and okay and accepted, or B, they, they didn't ever see it, so they couldn't speak to it. There's also how absurd and blatant the corruption was. It's huge, but it's also really rather on the surface. A lot of what FIFA was doing, is still doing, hasn't been um, very well concealed. It's like they never bothered to think they had to conceal it. It is true. Like When the, the kimono is opened on these people, they don't seem like sophisticated international masterminds, right? They're kind of bumbling or careless or not as clever as they could be. And it parallels inevitably the, the stuff we're seeing now with Trump because, you know, um, all these Trump people are sort of bumbling too. The Manafort's the world were not that clever. Like he's, he's using, you know, laundered Ukrainian money to buy like Persian rugs and that sort of thing. 
Meanwhile, it's much harder to get evidence on the Russians because they're more careful, right? And I think that happened in this case as well. We can maybe get into this in a bit, but this case, of course, has Russian roots. And then I think it was really hard to make a case against the Russians, but it's really hard. To, it's really easy to make a case against a bunch of FIFA guys they, because they're not careful. And I think part of it is maybe it's because they're stupid, but I think it's also because there's a kind of impunity they have probably in the same way that people in Trump's environment have impunity too, which is if you spend your whole life doing bad things and never really getting in trouble for it, after a while you think you can do anything. You know, Chuck Blazer ends up becoming a cooperator because he didn't pay taxes for at least 17 years. And I don't mean he hid income. I mean, he didn't even file taxes, right? It's it's just kind of a shocking thing for us Americans who, you know, understand that filing taxes is, is sort of like a genetic obligation, right? And, um, that takes a certain kind of chutzpah that not many people have. And these guys are all like that. You know, what their experience was is that soccer was such a powerful and beloved thing that in the rest of the world, no law enforcement was willing to touch it. They were terrified. It was too hot of a potato. The political pressure was too great to ever really take it on. In fact, in the UK, where they, they love the sport so much, but they're also, I mean, if there's any country in the world where people get um, worked into a lather about corruption and get, you know, get in high dudgeon, it's the English, right? They just go crazy over corruption. But they wouldn't take this case on even when they're presented evidence because um, they were too scared of offending the folks in FIFA. Um, there's an investigative journalist in Britain who who had like a BBC documentary and he wanted to put it out right before the vote in 2010. And the Brits tried to, the British government tried to prevent the BBC from putting it out because they were terrified they would offend, you know, the mandarins in Zurich. Um, so... I think it was, it was a total shock to these FIFA guys that the U.S. would look into this because no one had ever done anything criminal on them, really. Nothing substantive, nothing had ever really happened, and nothing had ever you know, befallen them. I don't think this detail made it in the book, but um, there was this crazy uh, case in, uh, involving um, MasterCard, Visa, and FIFA, where MasterCard was the long-term sponsor of the World Cup, the credit card sponsor. And kind of by fiat, FIFA just ripped up its contract with MasterCard and signed a deal with Visa. So MasterCard sues, ends up in federal court. Blatter, Seth Blatter gets called as a witness and, of course, refuses to show up. So they send Chuck Blazer as his, as his proxy. And Chuck Blazer is a witness in, in, in federal court. And the judge just calls him a liar. Like, he listens to his testimony. And, and I think that's really unusual. Judges don't call people liars. But the judge just called him a liar in court, you know, because the stuff he was saying was just totally uncredible. But there was, again, no, I mean, FIFA lost the case and had to pay a lot of money. But... Other than that, there was no other kinds of ramifications for them. And so no one really expected that anyone would ever, you know, actually do the homework to see where the money went. I feel like one of the most shocking details you sort of drop early in the book, because it starts with the 2010 decision to have this current World Cup in Russia and how England was like the stronger candidate. Every thought, but he thought it was going to go that way. And then somehow it didn't. And Qatar <laughs> had the next one. How did that happen? Um, the idea that Spain and Portugal surrendered their bid in exchange for preferential treatment by the refs in the 2010 mm-hmm. World Cup. Like that, that was like a knife to the heart. I have to <laughs> say, like reading that, I was like, oh my no, no, God. no, 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 no. FIFA investigated that and they found there was no wrongdoing. <laughs> That's right. That's right. FIFA, I, I interviewed the head investigator for uh, oh, wow. the FIFA investigation and he. He's now a um, appeals court judge in New York where, you know, the New York, that's the high, that's the, New York's got funny names for their courts. So um, their appeals court is what every other state would call their Supreme Court. So he's the, he's in the highest judge in the, he's one of the highest judges in the state of New York. And he, but I interviewed him before he was a judge and he just, he talked about that investigation and tried to defend it. But the truth is he wasn't even allowed to set foot in Russia because he was on a banned list by Russia. And so their lead investigator couldn't go into Russia the second investigator, who is a Swiss guy, and like all respect to Swiss, but like history has shown us when it comes to criminal investigations, they're not that interested <laughs> in getting to the bottom of it. Um, he goes to Russia and says, OK, we need to see your books. We need to see your computers so we can look at all the accounting. And, and Russia says, well, a funny thing happened. We gave the computers back. To, they released. We gave them back and they destroyed them all. So there's no records. And then FIFA says, oh, OK, well, you must be innocent then and move on. And close the book. <laughs> wow. So speaking of um, referee bribing in 2010, uh, in the USA versus Slovenia match, 
we were uh, tied 2-2, um, and um, Maurice Duce scored a winning goal, which was called back by the referee. So we didn't get the win, only got the tie. So my question is, did Putin bribe that referee <laughs> for strategic reasons or just because he hates our freedoms? Wow. <laughs> Put me in the spot there. I... <laughs> I <laughs> but also, also, actually, we went back and watched like highlight clips of that final, mm -hmm. and that Dutch player kicked that guy in the chest in the final oh, yeah, and did yeah. not get red carded. So I felt like maybe that was proof that they were not. Well, <laughs> don't forget Mexico, right? I mean, you know, the Dutch player took the biggest flop ever, yeah. creating a permanent scar in the Mexican psyche. Um, actually, there was a uh, a podcast I heard about. Um, well, I was interviewed for, but didn't didn't appear in it. But it's still interesting about the 2002 World Cup and how South Korea went to the quarterfinals yeah. and beat Italy and other people along the way. And the the ref who was Ecuadorian in the in this game, Italy versus South Korea, and made these bizarre calls. Later, goes on to get banished from the Ecuadorian professional league because uh, you know at the end of the match there's stoppage time, and it's usually three or four, sometimes five minutes. Mm -hmm. In one match, uh, he gave 13 minutes of stoppage time. It just <laughs> wouldn't end. <laughs> And until it, and it just wouldn't blow the whistle until the team that needed to score the goal scored the goal. Oh my god! And then a few years later, he ends up getting busted at Kennedy Airport with five pounds of heroin in his underwear. Wow. <laughs> Actually, Rebecca had another theory that that that's the reason that um, England. What isn't that your theory for this World Cup? Well, my theory is that uh, Putin wants to punish England. I'm just trying to parse which teams Putin, uh, you know, obviously he's favoring Russia, um, but I'm just pretty much assuming that. This is for your bracket. Yeah. Yeah. For my bracket. Exactly. Yeah. Any referee who's going to refuse a bribe from Putin. Well, I'm... I thought your theory was like about the steel dossier and how oh, that's, that's why. Right. Was... <laughs> I'm sorry. That's because Christopher Steele is English and the steel dossier, but also Steele did a report for England in 2010 um, on what the Russians were up to, which eventually got to the FBI and was a major component in launching the investigation that your whole book is about. So yep. I just assume that Putin wants revenge against England for that reason. So, so what the evidence, I don't know exactly when this will air, but the evidence so far is that Russia has won its first two matches and scored eight goals with only two against, and everyone who follows it is shocked because Russia has a terrible team. They're definitely overperforming. Yeah. And the, uh, the second opponent, Egypt, uh, in a hilarious twist, it's a funny thing about the World Cup. They sort of get courted by different cities around the country to have their training camp in their city. And Egypt was courted by Chechnya and did their training in Chechnya, where the terrifying dictator was standing there watching them practice every day. Um, and they're great. One of the big stars of the World Cup is Mohamed Salah. And he's like, literally like, being escorted by the dictator from place to place. Oh, so well, that's pretty oh, weird. And then Jesus. Egypt goes out and gets slaughtered by them. So yeah. that's funny. I think the real tell would be, I mean, England won their first match, but the real tell will be what happens to England in the next couple of matches. Right. Yes. Well, then we'll really know. The U.S. didn't qualify. One can wonder what happened there. This all reminds me of a story that I, that I dug up in researching the book, which might be fun. It might just be boring. We'll find out. But <laughs> 1978 World Cup was in Argentina. It's one of the darkest moments in FIFA history because they held the World Cup right in the smack of the, one of the worst, bloodiest dictatorships in the world at the time. And about a mile and a half from the stadium where the finals were held was the most infamous torture center in all of Argentina called the ESMA. And um, truly you were having people being electrocuted and tortured, you know, a stone's throw away from the stadium. And FIFA was giving cover to all this and telling Argentina how wonderful they were. Um, and there's a uh, in the semifinals, it was a different structured World Cup back then. It was much more complicated how they got to the finals. And Brazil played a match and Argentina played a match. And the way it worked was that the uh, if both teams won, the team with the best goal differential would go to the final. Mm -hmm. And um, so they should have clearly played at the same time, but they ended up not playing at the same time. And Brazil played first and won something like three to nothing. Or they had a they won handily and had this huge goal differential. So by the time the match started, Argentina knew they had to win by three or four goals mm -hmm. to get to the final. And they played Peru and magically they win six to one, right? And before the match, the president of Argentina at the time, who's the head of the dictatorship, a really terrifying human being, 
goes to visit the the stadium, but rather going into the Argentinian locker room to say, let's go, boys, let's go out and make your country proud, he goes into the Peruvian locker room and walks around and menaces all these Peruvian players. And then the match starts, and sure enough, they get slaughtered out there. Wow. You know what this is making me think of? Because part of, of what we do on this podcast is that we, we get drunk and ruin the stuff you love. Like, we just culturally critique people's pleasures mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Out of we just critique the pleasure out of it by re- revealing it for what it is. And this week we're ruining the World Cup, which yeah. is very painful for me for both of us because we love the World Cup. But I'm realizing in listening to you that because one of my questions for you is how can we enjoy this sport when it is so corrupt? And I'm realizing the reason we are enjoying it is because it's so, because it has all of these stories because there's this like second layer to it that interacts with the actual sport that's so pleasurable and it's not like that with club teams it's like when it gets to this national level it's like war games and that's why we love it yeah i think that's right like i think the thing that mainstream americans don't get about soccer why they haven't really grabbed it the way the rest of the world is is because they fail to see it as a telenovela right they haven't understood it <laughs> Soccer is as much about what's happening when the ball's not rolling around as when it is, right? That's the endless discussion before and then the, the hand-wringing after and the what-ifs and all that. And also, you know, the fact that it's all against the backdrop of disgusting corruption and geopolitical turmoil <laughs> only adds to it, right? It would be, yeah. you know, if you think about it as a Netflix series, if there wasn't that, it'd be kind of dull and boring, right? You know, and there's not really any compelling Netflix series about Major League Baseball because it's like, Except for, you know, beyond Billy Bean and Moneyball, what's like, what's interesting about the drama? Like, you know, he's a left-handed pitcher. He's great. Like, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't work. But, like, soccer has all that ups and downs. And I think that clearly brings it to us. So, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. But I do think the fact that it's disgusting and, um, and vomit-inducing makes us weirdly love it even more. So... Why does it matter then if there's all this corruption in international soccer? Why should anybody care about the corruption? Yeah. You know, I guess that one of the things that in, in the case I wrote about this book was that the prosecutors, I think, worked hard to figure, to sort of explain who was being hurt by this. Right. Where's the where's the harm? Mm-hmm. And I think what they came to, which I think is true although maybe doesn't bowl you over, which is that, you know, all these, almost all these soccer associations are run as nonprofits. All the soccer federations in FIFA are, a lot of the club teams around the world are as well. And so the whole point of them is to generate, is to, is to develop the sport, generate money that can be passed down to further develop the sport. Right. And so mm-hmm. when you think about it that way, the victims are the sort of, are the, like the third world child who doesn't have proper cleats to put on his feet to run around the field. Right. Which is a real thing, right. That really does happen. Yeah. And, not necessarily because they want to generate the next Messi, although that, that would be a nice benefit, but because we'd like to believe that playing sports and being involved in them is sort of a nice human activity and makes people maybe marginally happier in their otherwise terrible lives. <laughs> and being deprived of the opportunity to do that, you know, some of them might like it. It might just be fun and make them a little bit happy. Um, and that's being deprived of them. And then there's other stakeholders that are also hurt, like fans. I mean, I've mm-hmm. if you go to a, if you go here in L.A., we have a brand new soccer stadium for the LAFC and it's gorgeous and glittering and beautiful and it's a wonderful experience. But if you go to a soccer match in rural Argentina or Brazil, it's, it's, you kind of can't believe how terrible these stadiums are. And the theory is if that, if the money that had been stolen from the sport was properly put into it, um, all that would drip down. You'd have nicer stadiums, you'd have better fields for kids and, and et cetera. And actually there's that big article. Um, you'd also have more Brazilian players staying and playing in Brazil. There was a big article in the New York Times about how Brazil isn't like so into this team this year because none of them play in Brazil, but none of them play in Brazil because at this point, all of the leeches have sucked all of the money out of it. Like 6,000 people are going to see a game. Like nobody's going anymore. The stadiums are in such terrible shape. And and Brazil spent a huge amount of money preparing for the World Cup in 2014. And I think bankrupt their soccer federation doing it i mean bankrupt the whole country right now like you know between that and the and the olympics there's no money left and and you know it's it's a side thing but it shows that everything's connected to fifa and one way or the other the greatest the largest public corruption scandal in world history is happening right now um centered around a brazilian firm called odebrecht and odebrecht um google it everyone um is 
a huge construction firm and have built massive public works all around, not just Latin America, but the U.S. and Africa and elsewhere. And it is bringing down politicians in country after country after country in Peru and Brazil. Mexico is being infected by it in Africa. And um, one of the big uh, projects they're involved in was building half the stadiums for the World Cup, all of which were deeply tainted projects. Yeah. So it it does hurt people. It it does suck. It's not just like meaningless, you know, who cares about the outcomes of sports matches. Like it has an impact. Yeah, and I think I mean another way to look at it is like let's look at Russia having the World Cup. I mean, I think we've forgotten is that in 2009, 2010 when Russia is secretly plotting, well, publicly applying to have the World Cup and secretly plotting to get it no matter what. Russia's not the Russia. Russia's public image is not the image it is now. Right now, it's this sort of like evil monster kind of thing. Back then, it was warm and fuzzy, right? This was the reset with Russia. Oh, right. This was yeah. Obama going and hugging Putin, and you know, and like let's 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 be warm and cuddly. Let's find let's be friends. Let's find commonality. At roughly the exact same time that Christopher Steele is watching increasingly ominous Russian dealings about the World Cup, Russia is agreeing um, to sign on to sanctions against Iran. The U.S. is agreeing to take Russia off all of these different sanctions lists it has, and it, we're really reaching sort of a wonderful, happy time with them. And what we didn't know and notice was, in fact, that Russia even then was was using the World Cup um, project as a testing ground for other stuff it was going to be doing that was a lot more damaging to us down the road, right? This is before Crimea. Mm -hmm. This is before the U.S. stuff. This is before Brexit. You know, this is the proof of concept. Can Russia make the world in its own image. Yeah, then if there's anything that ruins the World Cup this year, it has to be that. Just seeing this spectacle in Russia, seeing Putin in the stands, looking all happy and satisfied with himself, and he's getting everything he wanted. Yeah, and he's, and, and like Sepp Blatter, who I mentioned earlier, who was the president of FIFA, in the aftermath of this criminal uh, investigation, he resigns. Well, first he gets reelected, which is hilarious, right? I mean, <laughs> cops come in and arrest everyone in sight. And then two days later, there's an election. And you would think the president would finally be called to task. But instead, he wins overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. But three days after that, he's like, on second thought, I'm going to resign. And then the Swiss prosecutors open an investigation of him a few months later. FIFA Ethics Committee finally does something. They investigate him and they ban him for eight years. On appeal, it's reduced to six years. But he's banned from all football activities for six years. That means he's not supposed to go to matches or anything official. Well, last fall, Vladimir Putin personally invites Blatter to come to the World Cup. And the, for the first match of the World Cup, you have uh, Putin and the new FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, sitting next to each other in the presidential box. Um, and then a week, less than a week later, Blatter arrives in Moscow to sit down and watch two matches with Putin. Um, so what's happening? He's He's thumbing his nose, yeah. right, at FIFA and the West. He's saying, not only did I get this tournament through very questionable means, uh, but I'm going to rub FIFA's face in the fact that its disgrace past is fine with me, and I'm going to give it the imprimatur, you know, the, the endorsement. And if you don't like it, you can stuff it because I'm doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think that, to me, is a, it's a really strong reminder of how ugly the, the underpinnings of this are. Although you got to admire just his pure troll superpower, right? <laughs> right? He really is a troll. It's somewhat impressive. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in and yes. talking to us about your awesome book. Guys, we recommend all of you go out and read it. It's a delicious read. And you're going to get through it quickly because it's a very gripping read. Yeah, even if you're not interested in soccer at all, it's a very engaging story about an investigation that has a ton of echoes with current events and I think is uh, worth reading, even if just for that. I think our listeners would really appreciate that. Bringing it back to a couple of episodes ago where we were talking about how Trump's ability to succeed, Trump's narrative to succeed because of his performance as a mafia don. Right. I feel like for anyone who loves mafia narratives, the rather colorful cast of characters <laughs> who show up <laughs> are so fucking entertaining. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to say as a, as a parting shot on that, that, you know, even if you don't like soccer, as you said, it's worth reading, if for nothing else, for all the, I think the fun Trump stuff, right? I mean, uh, one of my favorite details is that 
Donald Trump, who's a personal friend of this guy, Blazer, um, uh, lets Blazer hold his high school reunion in the Trump Tower, <laughs> which I thought was really hilarious. Yeah, uh, yeah. So come, come for the Trump. You'll find it. It's in there. It's like little <laughs> Easter eggs scattered throughout. All right. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, guys. Oh, that was great. That was awesome. <laughs> Thanks again to Ken for joining us for that conversation. I think that that is really helpful that actually realizing the reason that we do love soccer is as much because of how fucking fucked up it is, hmm. like how messed up it is. And it makes me realize like, that's why I love the World Cup. And in a lot of ways, as much as I love watching soccer always, mm -hmm. it's never as good as it is with the World Cup because I feel like I'm so susceptible to the geopolitical dynamics mm. of like everything that's going on. Like there was this amazing opening game eight years ago where France was beaten by Senegal, their former colony. Mm. And like, of course, you're rooting for Senegal to beat their former colonialists. Like, all of that stuff is so freaking pleasurable and you're watching it like play out. Yes, I, I agree with that. I think that history and geopolitics really play into every match and enhance the whole experience in a way. It's not just two teams playing, it's two nations playing. And that's, that's right. part of the whole fun of international soccer. That's always been part of it. Uh, to me, that's separate from the politics of the backroom deal making and the corruption mm. of FIFA. There's nothing like seeing nations who were formerly at war or formerly one colonized the other and they play each other and it's all fraught with this historical baggage. Yeah, it, that's actually a lot of fun. But to me, it's not super fun to think about how a dodgy call by a ref might have been just a mistake. Or right. maybe right. it was actually somebody working against my team. I, I'm a big proponent of not blaming the ref. That's right. I get real annoyed with fans of any sport who dwell on bad calls. I feel like sometimes right. you get the calls and sometimes you don't. You don't. Totally. Yeah. Totally. But then sometimes when it comes to FIFA, when it comes to any international soccer, it's hard to put that aside the the reality that you know at least some of the refs are crooked and right. that's just a reality right. of the sport and you just have to kind of live with that and it's a really weird thing to negotiate it is a weird thing to negotiate because it's also like i'm not gonna not watch this world cup right like, I'm not going to not watch this. Like, I fucking live for this. And I feel like that's part of what they exploit. Yeah. They exploit it, like, down to the bone. They exploit the fans' love. Oh, absolutely. Down to the, the bone. The fans will watch no matter what. And, I mean, that's one of the things that came out of Ken's book, came out of Red Card, is realizing the extent to which FIFA's corruption was well known and the different uh, regional confederations full of corrupt people and everybody knew. There have been news stories about it. There have been revelations. Oh. There was that one British journalist who sort of made it, it, who Ken writes about, who made it like his life's work. Yeah. Like he was always like the nut guy who mm -hmm. was like, yeah, I know you're crooked. Exactly. And of course he was right. And he was right. <laughs> and all the fans kind of know that, but they want the soccer so bad. That's why FIFA has had so much power for so long. And that's why they were able to get away with what they were doing. Right. Despite it right. barely being concealed for so long. I mean, Ken talked in the interview about how various governments and other institutions would just sort of uh, defer and kowtow to FIFA because they were afraid of them. And it's like, well, why would a government be afraid of a soccer federation, it doesn't make any sense, but they're this economic juggernaut because yes. the fans will show up and it's not just like the fans paying for tickets, it's the sponsorships. It's that when everyone in the world's eyes are on the World Cup, that is a gold mine for sponsorships and that that's right. it's so much money and that amount of money brings power and 
no country wants to be blacklisted. No country wants to be the country where the tournament will never be held and they never get their piece of that pie. Right. The fans are in this weird position where our love of the game and continued patronage of it uh, is what's allowing the corruption to happen. But you're not going to have an international boycott of soccer until every it cleans up its act. Like, that's not going to happen. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. Like, I am watching the Spain-Iran game right now. Me too. In the background <laughs> the whole time that we're recording, we're both watching I mean, game. I'm not going to miss it. Right. And I feel like that's one of those things. That was actually one of the things in the Franklin Four book. His chapter about Brazil is really beautiful because he basically outlines the extent of the corruption and the terrible impact that it's had on the world of Brazilian Mm -hmm. soccer. And then he ends with this sort of standing game between all of these like middle-aged old soccer players Mm -hmm. and how these fucking middle-aged guys carrying guts around play with this like brilliance and beauty that's so Brazilian football (laughs) and how even with all of this disappointment and corruption, the heart of it is still there. And maybe that's another thing that's why it's such a tricky thing Mm -hmm. because as big as the corruption is, the beauty of the sport is consistently undeniable. And so you have these things like intention with one another. This is my son's first. Uh, my son is a is a little soccer player. He's like my dad. He <laughs> he got all my dad's chops. Um, and this is the first time he's seven and a half where he really gets the World Cup. Mm. And so he's getting up at like five in the morning, Aww. and we're watching the games together. We're watching all the games together, and like. It's so um, it's such a wonderful thing to like pass on to him and with him. Mm-hmm. And it's so rare. It's once every four years. Like that makes it more I'm special. not going to lose that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And there's we're held hostage. It's we're true. Hostage. And there's something really lovely about the way it is the most popular game in the world. And so it creates this thread of connection internationally yeah it's not the most popular sport in the united states but there's as a numbers game there's probably as many people who care about soccer in the united states as there are people in a lot of other countries that's right and that's right and um yes there's there's several countries for whom it's not their number one sport but it's as close as we have to something universal to something that you could go anywhere in the world and and you have this connection where Everyone cares about it and everyone can connect around it. Even if we're rooting for different teams, you know, we're all participating and watching the same tournament. We're, we're agreeing to watch some of these political dynamics play out in this way. Yeah. And that's one of the other things I love about it is it's this sort of healthy outlet for tribalism. Right. That you can right. can come into a stadium all decked out with whatever iconography you feel represents your country best and you can do chants and sing songs and cheer and wave flags and then at the end of the day it is just a game and it's fine. It's <laughs> you don't have to go to war over it. Although I have to say <laughs> the last World Cup so the place in LA to go get football gear is called Nikki's Sports. Mm-hmm. And in the last World Cup, we haven't figured out whether they're doing it for this one. Nike spent like a half a million dollars building a mini pitch and a big screen where people can go watch the game. Amazing. At this like, like, you know, Mexican sports shop in the middle of like fucking MacArthur Park. It's awesome. Yeah. But we went there to go watch Mexico play the Dutch in the last World Cup. Mm -hmm. And they had to talk for like 15 minutes before the game. Like, guys, it's just a game. (laughs) Like, because there were all of these other countries there who weren't even in the World Cup, like Salvador, like Salvadorians were there. And they're like, guys, let us not have fights or else Nike will not come back here and set up this pitch. (laughs) Like, so we can say that this is a place where we agree agree to to be tribalist in a healthy way it's not always it's so not healthy. always so healthy no that's that's absolutely true uh, yeah i have plenty of friends who've had 
batteries and bags of urine thrown at them in, in Mexico City. <laughs> oh, like, it's not always great. When my parents went in, um, my parents actually started learning Spanish so that they could travel in South America and go watch soccer games because my dad <laughs> is like obsessed with Argentinian soccer. That's great. And like they went to go see Boca play, which is the one of the Buenos Aires teams. And they literally Fans have to leave at different times. Oh, yeah. Because if they allow the opposing side to leave at the same time as the home team, there will be such violence and fights. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I, I mean, uh, yeah, soccer fans aren't a, a peaceful bunch necessarily. So I want to pretend they think, are. I think this is the thing that ruins it is that our very love for it and for all the things that are beautiful about it are what allows these fucking selfish monsters Mm -hmm. to like exploit us and that is so Mm. wow that's so sad they create this emotional connection where you feel like it's really important and it's more than just a game and you're never gonna stop watching i feel like what's ruining it we're saying like okay our love for this thing makes us accept all of these horrible corrupt things Mm -hmm. as just business as usual yeah And I feel like that connects to what's happening in this country right now. I feel like the acceptance of these horrors as kind of business as usual or this idea that like this is what it is, guys. Mm -hmm. This is – I feel like that's – That's really interesting. I'm still going to be watching the World Cup, guys. I I should be fighting the good fight and like protesting, but I'm not going to. It makes me think of like – continuing to use Amazon, even though you know that they have business practices and labor practices that you don't approve of. Totally. Yeah. Feeling like you're in a position where you have to give up something. But also what that makes me think of is the ways in which sometimes we accept terrible things because we go, you know what, that's just human nature. Right. People are just selfish pigs. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the sort of brutality of it. We accept humanity as something that's terrible. And I think that that's part of the right wing social imaginary. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's part of gun people. Gun people are like, well, humans are horrible, terrible. And it's like an NRA talking. Yeah, no, exactly. That goes to like the culture of fear and, and the myth of shortage. It's like the essence of right wing (laughs) philosophy, ideology at this point. So basically, by enjoying the World Cup or by surrendering to it, you are surrendering to the things that make people surrender to right-wing ideology. I'll go with that. Oh, man. That is so fucking depressing. Okay. Well, hey, guys. We have ruined the World Cup. (laughs) We did it. (gasps) We did it. Beyond even, I think, our own expectations there. I know. We went to a dark place. Well done. All right, guys. Well, I've had so many emails from people who are like, I listen to you every week. Well, if you listen to us every week, why the hell are you not going onto iTunes and reviewing us, rating us and telling the world about how much we improve your damn week? We are trying to get more listeners, my friends. Yeah, step up. Do right now, right, right now. now. Right now. You could do it. Um, go on iTunes, rate us, review us. Also, give us a shout out on Twitter. We're at Sauce Podcast on Twitter. And you can also follow us on Instagram where we have, what do we have now? Like 45 followers? We're almost at 50. Almost at 50. All right. Let's, so. let's see if we can get past the 50 mark. Just come on. Like, because every time we think like, are there three people listening to us? We're like, <laughs> no, there are more. They're just not doing their part. Yeah. And also we want to hear from you. We want to hear your feedback, your thoughts. Yeah what aspects of the World Cup you're enjoying or whether you're able to enjoy it without the United States in it. Because it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> you can also email us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. We want to know what you're thinking about and then we can ruin those things for you. Yes, tell us what else to ruin. Absolutely. So you can also find me uh, at Maya Garantz, anywhere you're looking for Maya Garantz's. Um, and you can find me as Gynostar in a number of places like Twitter and Instagram. And you can find my webcomic at gynostar.com. 
All right, my friends, we are going to be with you next week. We hopefully won't clog up too much of the time talking about whatever games have happened between now and then, but I'm not making any promises. Adios, amigas. 